0: We're going to be in 2 Corinthians again this morning. Uh, I appreciate your willingness to uh, work on learning songs that are unfamiliar. It's a little bit of a flashback for me. In uh, two different churches, I was an assistant pastor, and uh, I had the responsibility many times in that role of doing song leading. And I remember one of my least favorite kinds of songs was a song that changed key signatures in the middle of the song or in the chorus. So uh, we just had to live through that. So I I can identify with your pain, Jerry. Um, Appreciate your uh, leading us through that. But uh, before we look at the scriptures, let's go ahead and uh, go to the Lord in prayer, and then we'll dive in. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you've given us your word. We thank you that uh, you have... Uh, worked in the life of Paul and the Corinthians uh, so that we have the material written here that we can learn from it. Uh, We thank you that it's been recorded and you've preserved it for us and that you continue to use it to shape our lives. We thank you and pray that you would help us to understand and to benefit from the things that Paul and the Corinthian church went through that we would also recognize ways in which we need to grow, we need to be more like Christ. And we pray that you would be honored and glorified as we look at your word this morning. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So there's a common phrase we use in our culture that I'm sure you're very familiar with. And the basic meaning of the phrase is that if you're going to uh, communicate a message or... Uh, set a standard. It's important that you follow that standard yourself, right? You've heard the phrase uh, "practice what you preach," right? So uh, we we uh, know this, and it's especially well understood, actually, both inside the church as well as outside the church. People understand very well if you're a pastor or you're a preacher. You have a message that you're communicating, and you're calling people to live a certain way. That if your life doesn't match up to that, it's a problem, and and uh, it needs to. And certainly in recent American history, as well, frankly, as throughout the uh, ages, uh, there've been many who have failed to do this and stand out as bad examples. But as we look at First Corinthians this or Second Corinthians this morning. We're going to see in the Apostle Paul really somebody who is a model of ministry or a model minister uh, in how he lived and how he ministered to the Corinthians and uh, what he says here. So let's go ahead and read 2 Corinthians 1 verses 12 all the way down through uh, chapter 2 and verse 4. I'm, I'm pretty sure you're aware that the chapter divisions are not inspired. You're aware of that, right? That came much later in history. That uh, probably, I don't know, uh, much later in history, we have the chapter and verse divisions. So um, I think the theme goes uh, from 12 in chapter 1 all the way to uh, verse 4 in chapter 2. So that's what we're going to read this morning says for our proud confidence is this the testimony of our conscience that in holiness and godly sincerity not in fleshly wisdom but in the grace of God we have conducted ourselves in the world and especially toward you for we write nothing else to you than what you read and understand and i hope you will understand until the end just as you also partially did understand us that we are your reason to be proud as you also are ours in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ in this confidence I intended at first to come to you so that you might twice receive a blessing that is to pass your way into Macedonia and again from Macedonia to come to you and by you to be helped on my way on my journey to Judea therefore I was not vacillating when I intended to do this was I or what I purpose do I purpose according to the flesh So that with me there will be yes, yes, and no, no at the same time. But as God is faithful, our word to you is not yes and no. For the Son of God, Christ Jesus, who was preached among you by us, by me in Silvanus and Timothy, was not yes and no, but is yes in him. For as many as are the promises of God, in him they are yes. Therefore also through him is our amen, To the glory of God through us. Now, He who establishes us with you in Christ and anointed us is God, who also sealed us and gave us the Spirit in our hearts as a pledge. But I call God as witness to my soul that to spare you I did not come again to Corinth. Not that we lorded over your faith, but are workers with you for your joy, for in your faith you are standing firm. But I determined this for my own sake, that I would not come to you in sorrow again. For if I cause you sorrow, who then makes me glad but the one whom I made sorrowful? This is the very thing I wrote you, so that when I came, I would not have sorrow from those who ought to make me rejoice, having confidence in you all that my joy would be the joy of you all. For out of much affliction and anguish of heart, I wrote to you with many tears, not so that you would be made sorrowful, but that you might know the love which I have especially for you. So, as you look at this passage of Scripture, I, I want to remind you of some of the things I think we covered in the introduction, just expand on that a little bit as it applies here, is that Paul, in writing to the 2nd Corinthians, is defending himself. Much of this book is a defense of his behavior or his ministry practices or how he's conducted himself because he's experienced some opposition from the Corinthian church. And uh, we're going to deal specifically with the issue of whether he was going to visit them or not and how that turned out. And actually what happened, Paul had talked about coming to visit them, and he didn't, and that led to accusations that he was fickle. He just changed his mind, changed his plans, and he wasn't therefore a reliable person and, and brought his integrity into question. So much of what we see here in this section is Paul defending himself from these kinds of complaints or accusations that the Corinthians have made. In fact, much of the book does that, especially as you get to chapters 10 to 13. He is very forceful in defending his ministry um, and vindicating his ministry against the false teachers that had risen up and had some influence there at Corinth so with that in mind as we understand we gotta we gotta understand that Paul is defending himself here and he's speaking of his ministry to them and he is in the process I believe exposing his character of his ministry which really in many ways is an excellent model for ministry or an excellent example of what a minister of the gospel should be so I want you to see the first point we're gonna look at is found in verses 12 to 14 where Paul explains his confidence of a clear conscience. He has a clear conscience for the things that he has done and how he has interacted with them, and he makes a point of that here in verses 12 to 14 as we get started. Notice his attitude of confidence in verse 12. He says, "...for our proud confidence is this, the testimony of our conscience." So Paul has an attitude of confidence in how he is looking at what he has done in relationship to the Corinthians. Now, what does it mean that he has proud confidence? Isn't there many passages in the scripture where it talks about the problem with pride and arrogance? Certainly, there is much in the scripture about that. But um, Paul, on many occasions, talks about having a boast that is a right kind of boast, a boast in the Lord, rejoicing in what the Lord has done. And we need to understand, Paul's defending himself here, so it's not that he's just eager to brag about himself, but the idea is he's trying to defend himself to them, feeling forced into that for the sake of the church and and them being defended against these uh, false apostles, as he later calls them, that have had influence in Corinthians. Um, So he is here boasting in a sense, but the idea is he's rejoicing in this state that's true. He's rejoicing in the fact that he has had a clear conscience uh, in his interactions with them. So he is, yes, boasting in one sense, but you might understand that as a rejoicing, or this is something he's confident that he has acted in such a way that he doesn't, have an outstanding offense against them that he has to apologize or make up for. He rejoices in the fact, he has great confidence in the fact that he has acted appropriately to him. And that is the means of his confidence, actually, is how he has conducted himself. He talks here about his means of confidence in saying uh, what his behavior has been. Um, and he says, again, it is his clear conscience. I guess before I dive into his conduct real quick, just wanted to mention the understanding of conscience. Paul here is talking about his conscience is clear. Well, what does that mean? Well, uh, one definition I read says it's the human faculty. Our conscience is the human faculty whereby a person judges his actions, uh, whether already performed or intended, and the, the actions of others it judges human action by the light of the highest standard a person perceives. Or a more simple definition by Homer Kent is one's inner consciousness regarding the rightness of his actions. So conscience is a God-given ability for us to evaluate ourselves and how we're behaving, what we're thinking, and judging whether that's right or wrong, and is therefore helpful to encourage the right behavior or bring us into conformity with God's standards, but we also can have a misinformed conscience at times too. The conscience can be at times misguided. So um, it's important that a conscience is properly informed by the scripture. So we need to have the scripture to inform our conscience that we are thinking the right things. It is possible at times that we are sensitive about and think things are wrong that aren't actually but there's also many times that we think something isn't wrong and it is but our conscience is imperfect though it is a good thing it's because of our sin nature that has been corrupted and it needs to be informed by the word of god we're also aware through the scripture teaching that conscience can also be seared we can repeatedly do something that's wrong and we, we thereby eventually lose the sensitivity to the wrongness of that uh, and damage our conscience. I, I like the, uh, the concept of a warning light on your dashboard, right? Your, your dashboard warning lights can be very helpful in exposing to you a problem with your car, but sometimes they can also be unimportant, right? Drawing attention to things that aren't really that significant. I don't know about you, but one of the ones I get often is check engine, right? There's a check engine light that comes on and that sounds dastardly, right? What's wrong with my engine? Well, what has happened in modern times is they've connected that to uh, pollution control stuff. So, oh, you're just putting out a little extra, I don't, I I, uh, might be upsetting some of you that are really concerned about those things, but in the grand scheme, it's not that my engine's gonna fail, it's it's a, a warning that isn't as significant as it sounds, right? In a similar way, our conscience can be misguided. We need to be guided by the word of God. And ultimately, Paul tells us in, in Corinthians 4, that, 2 Corinthians chapter 4 that God is going to be the ultimate judge. Our conscience helps us decide right and wrong uh, as far as what we have in Revelation and how we've understood it. But ultimately, God is our judge. But Paul here is saying, and, and his conscience is certainly well informed by the word of God, is it not? As an apostle, he has a special revelation from God. He knows the scriptures very well. He has a conscience, he says, that is clear. He is convinced that how he has behaved towards them is without fault, and therefore there's no legitimate reason for them to be upset with him. And he, and he goes on, he explains a little more clearly the conduct of which he has is, he is, uh, done and uh, why he has a clear conscience here. So notice also the basis of his confidence is his past conduct in uh, working with the Corinthians. Notice that his conscience uh, is clear in regard to the character of his conduct, the character of his conduct. Notice it says there in verse 12, that in holiness and godly sincerity, not in fleshly wisdom, but in the grace of God, we have conducted ourselves in the world and especially towards you. So the character of his conduct, he says, first of all, we have this translation of the word holiness. Now, is there anyone that has an ESV or a KJV this morning? If you have one of those versions, you probably see the word singleness. Or, uh, uh, or uh, sincerity. Um, well, sincerity is the next word. But uh, we have translated here in the NASB, it's holiness. But I believe in the King James and ESV, it's simplicity. Or sinceri- Well, sincerity is the second word. Um, but instead of holiness, you have this other word. But The reason for this, I don't normally dive into this, but I uh, came across this in study, and there was uh, several people that mentioned this. I thought it was significant to understand. The reason for the difference, actually, is there are different manuscripts that have different Greek words, and that's really the reason why. And I think, in this case, the idea of simplicity makes more sense. So, just to give you a little picture, don't normally do this, but I thought it might be fun for you to see it. this is the word for simplicity that some versions have and this is the word for holiness now if you notice the last five letters of the word are exactly the same and it starts with the letter A in both cases and it's just these two letters are different so you imagine uh, people copying the scriptures could easily make a mistake between those two words very simply Um, and I think the better one given the context is to understand it as simplicity Though holiness could fit, it, it is uh, interesting to note several things. Number one, uh, singleness is a better fix with what Paul is saying. He's talking about having a single focus, a simple, uh, genuine interaction with them and how he communicates. And also, the word for simplicity, the first one up there, is used several times throughout Second Corinthians. While this other word for holiness, Paul, is never used outside of this one time. So, um, in the grand scheme, it could be either one. I think simplicity makes more sense, given the context here. But Paul is talking about his conduct in working with the Corinthians, that his motives are are, uh, focused on their good. He has not done anything inappropriate in his interaction with them. He has acted appropriately and with godly sincerity is the next word he says there and he also says not in fleshly wisdom but in the grace of god so the idea of fleshly wisdom would be living for the material world and uh, a human uh, focused instead of a divine focused love uh, which would therefore be following the standards of the world or living for self so Paul is saying, I haven't served you for my own selfish purposes or put myself first in any of these, these things. Therefore, my conscience is clear. And he says, instead of living according to fleshly wisdom, I have lived according to the grace of God. In other words, he is guided by God's standards and not the world. He is motivated by love to seek what was in their best interest, not what was in his own best interest. So... Paul is making the case that his character has been uh, such that he can have a perfectly clear conscience for how he's treated them. Also, he talks about the consistency of his conduct. Look, he says that he has acted this way both in the world and especially towards them. So the regular, standard manner of his behavior is this way, but even more so, he's treated the Corinthians well, and has sought their interest instead of selfishly seeking his own interest. So Paul is saying he has treated them well, and he has a completely clear conscience towards them and how he's treated them. Therefore, they should recognize that too. He has not been selfish in how he's conducted him. He also says this is confirmed in his writing. Basically, he's writing a letter to them now that we have in Second Corinthians, but he's also referring to uh, his writing that he did previously. He says, for we, for we write nothing else to you that what you read and understand, and I hope you will understand until the end, just as you also partially did understand us. Paul is confirming uh, that his writing also matches. What he has said in his letters matches it. He has written to them not in hidden messages or using deceitful words, but he has been truthful, he's been forthright, he's been uh, transparent with them, writing in a way that is simple and sincere, genuine. Um, And ultimately he says that he looks forward to celebrating with them in the day of the Lord. Notice the end here, he says that we are your reason to be proud as you also are ours in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. So, ultimately, he has a clear conscience about how he's treated them, and he's also convinced of their genuine salvation. Now, what's maybe not evident at this point in the letter is that he's had a lot of tension with them to the point of wondering if some of them might be turning away from the faith um, or demonstrating that they never were believers. Um, But he is saying... Uh, those that have uh, understood him, as he refers to here, having understood, he is confident that he will rejoice with them in the day of the Lord. Now I want you to turn real quick to First Thessalonians chapter two, where we see a similar concept about rejoicing in the day of the Lord, and I think it helps give a little bit of understanding to what he's referring to. In First Thessalonians chapter two verse 19 he's talking about the Thessalonians and how ultimately he is going to rejoice with them in the day of Christ he says in verse 19 of 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 for who is our hope or our joy or crown of exaltation? is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus at his coming for you are our glory and joy he says in verse 20 the point Paul's making with the Thessalonians I believe is the same he's making here with the Corinthians is we have brought the gospel to you you've responded you've trusted Christ and therefore on the day of Christ knowing that you're a genuine believer and you're going to persevere in the faith as a demonstration of that we look forward to rejoicing on the day of Christ with you we're going to have joy that God used us to share the gospel with you and you responded That's going to be great joy. And Paul's saying that you would also on that day recognize us as your joy. We're the ones that brought the gospel to you. So you should be rejoicing on that day that God used us to bring the gospel to you. So Paul is bringing it here to a closing thought about his clear conscience, saying how he has ministered to them in godly conduct, and he has been the same in his writing, same in person. And that ultimately, therefore, they should recognize he is not trying to harm them. He has integrity and has demonstrated that through his life. But let's notice also here how Paul draws attention to the consistency of his life with his message in verses 15 to 22. So verses 15 and 16, we see how he talks about how he planned to go see them. And this they knew. They knew that he was planning to come see them um, and and he didn't end up coming to see them when they thought he was going to and that's the basis of this accusation that's going to come in the section that he'll deal with, especially in verse 17. But notice he talks about his positive plans that he had for them in verses 15 and 16. It says, "...in this confidence I intended at first to come to you so that you might twice receive a blessing, that is to pass your way into Macedonia and again from Macedonia to come to you, and by you to be helped on my journey to Judea. So what Paul says is he planned to come two different times. Once on his way to Macedonia, and once on his way back and as he was going to head to Judea. He's working his way to Judea, and he wanted to come see them. That was his plan. They knew he had planned to come see them. And he says he planned for these to be wonderful, encouraging visits for their mutual benefit. Notice uh, he says that uh, it would be a a double blessing. He says uh, twice receive a blessing there in verse 15. He also says at the end of 15 that he, he expected them to be a help to him on his way to Judea. So this was his plans, but that's not what happened. So therefore that led to them accusing him of vacillating. Notice verse 17. And this really seems like he's answering a charge that they have against him. Verse 17, he says, Therefore, I was not vacillating when I intended to do this, was I? Or what I purpose, do I purpose according to the flesh, so that with me there will be yes, yes, and no, no at the same time? So Paul is dealing with this specific complaint again, and per- perhaps he's even quoting their own charge against him, that he vacillates, he can't make up his mind, because he said he was gonna come and yet he didn't. So he's addressing that and saying his plans were purposeful, he had a sincere, determined intention of going to see them and that he is not double speaking. The, The idea of yes, yes, and no, no, is that you're saying yes, but really secretly you mean no. So, in other words, you're being deceptive in what you're saying. And Paul's pointing out that's not at all what's going on here. He's saying that he intended to come, he desired to come, and it was going to be a blessing. But there were other reasons why he didn't come, which he's going to say, actually, in the third section as we look at that. He'll explain that in a little more detail. But, before he gets there, he wants to attack this idea that he would speak this way, that he would speak without integrity, that he'd be purposefully deceitful in how he speaks to them. And, he, and, and to do that, what he does is he ties his actions, his words, with the ministry of the gospel and the character, ultimately, of God. Because Paul is a representative of God and the message of the gospel as an apostle, Paul is saying, how can we preach this gospel which is so affirmative to you that you have all these promises in Christ and you responded to the gospel saying yes to the gospel. How can we uh, encourage you to respond this way to this glorious message and be deceitful on the, on the other hand? He's like, obviously we can't do that. doesn't make sense. And that's what he's tying together in verses 18 to uh 20 is he's making the point that the nature of his message is such that it's positive in Christ and they have all these glorious promises, and God is faithful in what he says he will do, and therefore, as his servants, they're going to be the same way. He is reliable and he's trustworthy because part of what has happened in all of this difficulty is they've not only called into question the character of Paul but they've also called into question the message therefore that Paul brought and Paul is making very clear the character of God the character of this message that he's bringing is such that it is uh, trustworthy and reliable and he as well is trustworthy and reliable so Paul is pointing out, he has the same speech and characterization of the message that he's bringing. Notice, 18 to 20 here. It says, but as God is faithful, our word to you is not yes and no. For the Son of God, Christ Jesus, who was preached among you by us, by me and Silvanus and Timothy, was not yes and no, but is yes in him. For as many as are the, pro- are the promises of God in him, they are yes, therefore also him is Through him is our amen to the glory of God through us. So he is saying the message is that God has provided salvation in Jesus Christ. And his point is you've recognized that, you've trusted that, and you know that God is faithful. We are his messengers, and therefore you should expect that we are trustworthy and reliable like the message that we're delivering. So uh, a way of saying this is uh, to recognize there is not an arbitrary breaking of promises as far as God is concerned, right? God is faithful. And Paul implies, therefore, just as God is faithful in fulfilling his promises of the gospel, so Paul, as a preacher of the gospel, may be trusted to not do, not to say one thing about his travel plans and then without real cause do something else now he is going to in verses 23 and beyond explain more about why he chose not to come but he's tying together the nature of his message and like we started with he's practicing what he's preaching he is a faithful messenger who is reliable like his message is reliable and he says part of the reason why he is in verses 21 to 22 it is the work of the Spirit of God in their lives look at 21 to 22 does now he who establishes us with you in Christ, anointed us and anointed us is God, who also sealed us and gave us the Spirit in our hearts as a pledge. He is pointing here to the power of the Spirit of God and establishing the Corinthians in the faith by their conversion and their continuing in it, by His power. That same God is at work in Paul and his co-workers, because they are anointed by God. They have been set apart for a special ministry to take the gospel around the world, and Paul is saying it's the Spirit of God at work in us, therefore we're trustworthy and reliable. He also says God gave his Spirit as a seal. We have the stamp of approval of God as we carry the divine message, and the the seal here we know is used in Ephesians, the talk of the Holy Spirit, as our pledge or our... earnest of our inheritance, right? The idea of an earnest. Um, If you go and you buy a house, they do occasionally still use this terminology when you are gonna buy a house you put down what they call earnest money and if you decide to pull out of that sale for whatever reason you lose that earnest money. That earnest money is your guarantee that you are going to see this sale through So God has given His Spirit as a seal or as an earnest that we are His and that what He has started in us, He's going to finish. So Paul is pointing out that they are sealed by the Spirit. They they, uh, are truly His. They're anointed by the Spirit. Therefore, they're reliable. And if they didn't come when they intended to, there must be a good reason for it. And that then is what he's going to explain in verses 23 to the, uh, verse 4 in chapter 2. So Paul explains his compassion here for the congregation in Corinth. And this is where understanding a little bit of the background is helpful because Paul is going to call God to be his witness here in verse 23 about why he didn't come. He says in verse 23, but I call God as witness to my soul that to spare you I did not come again to Corinth and what's he getting at to spare you well understanding what happened uh, between 1st and 2nd Corinthians being written Paul did go visit them because there were problems in the church and it ended up being a contentious situation and in fact what we understand from later on in 2nd Corinthians is that Uh, someone in the congregation at least one person strongly opposed him and it sounds like that person opposed him in the congregation and the rest of the church didn't stand up and defend him so he ended up leaving not in a good situation with the church and then he writes this other letter that he speaks of here in verses 3 and 4 in chapter 2 uh, be, after his painful visit, that's called the painful visit, that one I just described to you, he writes a letter, very emotional, where he's confronting them about the various issues, and he's expecting them to respond to that in obedience and deal with the individual who has been rebellious and opposed to Paul. And so what Paul is saying is he's just written this other letter and, in a disciplinary fashion and had this painful visit, and even though he had planned to come two more times, he decided it wasn't best to come yet because it would have been another painful visit that would have resulted in sorrow. So he's saying that he didn't come to spare them more grief. But he explains his purpose in verse 24 is ultimately for their joy. Notice in verse 24, "...not that we lorded over you, your faith, but our workers with you and for your joy." Or in your faith you are standing firm." The point is, he had just challenged them and confronted them about some things that were wrong in the church through his letter. He didn't want to then show up right away expecting that they would have immediate compliance with these hard things that he had just said to them. He wanted to give them time to deal with the problems and respond to what he had written. And there was some sorrow that they had in, in response to this, But he wanted to wait and delay until he could come at a time that would already have been resolved, and it could be a joyful visit instead of being another painful visit. So notice he also says here that he is um, working to uh, uh, avoid the unnecessary unnecessary sorrow by coming again too early. Verses 1 and 2, he says, but I determined this for my own sake that I would not come to you in sorrow again for if I cause you sorrow who then makes me glad but the one whom I made sorrowful again I I realize we're covering a lot there's a lot of verses we are going fast but the idea is that Paul had just been there and caused a lot of it was a painful visit he wrote this letter in response and they essentially did respond with some sorrow to that letter But he he wants to give them time to resolve those things for the Spirit of God to work and straighten some things out so that when he comes the next time, it'll be an occasion of joy. It'll be an occasion of positive rejoicing at what God has done in their midst. So he's saying he didn't want to come because it was too early after this painful visit and the hard things that he had to say in that previous letter. But notice... uh, Number four here, that he explains that all of this was motivated by his love for them. Uh, and, And he says in verses three and four, This very thing I wrote to you so that when I came, I would not have sorrow from those who ought to make me rejoice, having confidence in you all that my joy would be the joy of you all. For out of much affliction and anguish of heart, I wrote to you with many tears, not so that you would be made sorrowful again, but that you might know the love which I have especially for you. So as he concludes this thought, he's telling them the motivation for writing that difficult letter, the one between 1st and 2nd Corinthians, was so that they would know that he loved him them and that they would work on straightening these things out so that he could then later visit in, in a joyful occasion. So uh, you might say, well, if it was such a hard letter, why would he characterize that as loving? Well, if you understand, the Bible tells us Proverbs 27, five, open rebuke, or better is open rebuke than secret love, right? If you truly love someone, you will confront them about the things wrong in their lives. right? If you've been a parent, you understand you don't let your children run to the oven that has a fire, or a stove that has a fire on it. You don't let your children just run to it and put their hand on it or dive into it, right? You lovingly protect them from such things. And as they get older, of course, the things that they need to be protected from are more subtle and difficult. But as a parent, you lovingly correct. You lovingly deal with those things so that they avoid that trouble and that hurt. And that's what Paul is saying. I wrote you a letter that was very hard. It was full of challenging, difficult things, and it will have an impact on making you sorrowful. But I wrote those things because I love you. And ultimately, he's saying the reason he didn't come at this time was because he wanted to wait until some of those things have been worked out and he can come on a joyful occasion instead of making them sorrowful again. So, as we wrap this up, I know we covered it quick and there's a lot of details. I think we see an example here of Paul and how he interacted with the Corinthians and how he behaved in ministry throughout his life. What we see is a man who had a clear conscience. He had a clear conscience in how he uh, behaved. He, he did what was right and if he did something that wasn't right, he made it right quickly. It doesn't mean he was a perfect man or a perfect apostle never did anything wrong the idea is if he did something he dealt with that and made it right quickly he had a clear conscience before God and before man he also uh, had a consistent life and message what he preached he practiced he was faithful in how he dealt with people like God is faithful in dealing with his promises that's an incredible statement And he was also motivated by love in how he interacted. He denied himself what was originally going to be a blessing and a joy to go to them. He denied himself that because he realized it would be better if he didn't go at the time. And all of it he wrote them and what he did to, to challenge them was motivated by love. So I was thinking about this passage in Paul for you as you're looking for a pastor. These are some qualifications that would be good to find in that next pastor, right? A man who has a clear conscience about his conduct in previous ministries if he's been in ministry previously. A man who is consistent, who lives a life consistent with his faith. Do those around him know him as a believer and a consistent one as a godly, a godly man? One of the qualifications of a pastor is that they are not only respected within the church but without the church outsiders recognize that this is a person who believes what he says and is living according to that um... we also understand a very basic principle of christianity is we should be motivated and operate by love is the person a loving person do they demonstrate a loving behavior and manner in their own family do they have a loving manner with how they deal with people in the church? Do they have a loving motivation in how they carry out ministry? Or are they driven by statistics and selfish things? Getting, getting more people to make themselves look better or to get more money or or whatever. There should be a motivation of love. And these kinds of things are difficult to understand right because people will tell you oh yeah I'm this this and this but you need that's one of the reasons why you do reference checks you verify that there's testimony of these people being this way consistently right but not only in looking for a new pastor we also should understand this is how all of us should operate right we should strive to live on a daily basis with a clear conscience we should strive to be consistent. How we live at home should match how we live on Sunday. It should match how we live in the workplace. It should match and how we treat our neighbors. There should be a consistency in our life that it's because we are genuine believers and we want to please the Lord in every aspect of our lives, there should be a consistency. We should strive to be faithful as God is faithful. And we should be motivated by love. We should not be seeking our own selfish interest but the interest of others. We should put the interest of others ahead of ourselves. We should operate in love in our homes, we should operate in love uh, with how we deal with our neighbors. There's a lot of snow today, probably going to be more. Are we willing to demonstrate some love to neighbors by doing some of their part of the sidewalk? Or we always rigidly cut it off at ours and never anything more? It's a minor thing. But do we demonstrate love in our homes and are consistent with that in our lives? I I believe all of us would have to recognize there's ways we need to grow. But Paul stands as an excellent model and example for us of what a godly minister looks like and certainly will hopefully influence your thinking about your next pastor, but also will be an influence in how you think about your own life and your own responsibilities to God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I know this is a long and challenging passage. I I pray that you'd use it to be encouragement and challenge to us. We we all need to grow. There's shortcomings in all of our lives, but help us, Father, to learn to be more consistent in our walk with you uh, daily, Uh, walking with you, spending time with you, so that your spirit has free reign in our lives to shape us and mold us and motivate us by love and, and to make us consistent and faithful like you are. Help us, Father, to live with a clear conscience, and if we've done things to violate it, help us, Father, not to ignore that, but to deal with it, to get that cleansed so that we can have a clear conscience again. Help, us, help this church, Father, uh, in a critical time, looking for your wisdom and your direction in who they find as their next pastor. We pray that you'd give them a man who is like this, a man who uh, has a clear conscience, one who lives that way consistently, is consistent with the message he preaches, and one who will be motivated by love in the ministry and in the home and in all of his life. I pray that you would direct them that person and father we know that there's a lot of people that aren't that way so it's really hard and yet we believe you provide for your church and pray that you would guide and direct them to be clear about who that is and to patiently and faithfully serve you until that time you reveal that but we pray you encourage us help us to faithfully walk with and serve you and we ask these things in jesus name amen